What is this moment asking of you? What is this moment asking of you? How can you know? Where do you look? This talk will be mostly about the three marks of existence or the three Dharma seals, which are indicators of Buddhist teachings. And these three are like signposts on a path set there by travelers who've gone before. So generous. They make it easier for us to walk the path and to respond to each moment fully, to see what this moment is asking and to respond freely and fully. So I hope you will investigate them for yourself in your practice. So what are they? I like how Dharma teacher Ruth King puts them. Life is not perfect, it's not permanent, and it's not personal. Life is not perfect, it's not permanent, and it's not personal. The other thing that this talk will be about is the transformational nature of life. which is in many ways how the three seals show up. So we can begin to actually look for this in our life, look for this in our practice, and see for ourselves how to respond to what is, and how to transform suffering. Speaking of suffering, I can speak to a current experience of nervousness and anxiety. And it feels like a surge of energy, some trembliness, a rapid heartbeat, sweat. And the more that I decide that this is all wrong and it shouldn't be, then the more that it is suffering. The inner critic often has a lot to say about the things that we care the most about. Sitting up here in front of all of you on this box can feel like standing at the edge of a high dive, something I would probably not choose to do. And if I did, it would probably take me many, many repetitions to not be terrified in that circumstance, but it could be done. And you watch masters of such a, such an act who can twirl and twist and do all kinds of acrobatics in those few seconds on the way down. Sometimes I feel like I'm following one of those acts up here every day after hearing Hogan Roshi give a talk. <laughs> But really, it's just a box. And 
what is it, not even two feet tall? And there's not a swimming pool. It's a beautiful room full of people who are very, very kind. And there's a bottomless pool receiving us all and everything that we can't fall out of. So this, I can't help but be reminded of uh, Dan Harris. Maybe you know who he is. He has been an anchor, a news anchor for ABC News and Nightline, and he was embedded in war zones in Iraq and was really into it in the Iraq war. Really macho, making a name for himself, hard driving, tough guy, building his career and ignoring his own uh, PTSD, his own injuries, finding himself numbing these out with cocaine, chasing status and fame. Until one day he had a panic attack on the air in the midst of his newscast. Now, a panic attack for someone in his profession is a threat to his livelihood. And a panic attack in any circumstance is really frightening. They're unexpected, uncontrollable. You feel like you might be having a heart attack. You feel like you might die. And in his newscast, it made him inarticulate. He looked like he was kind of choking. He was making all these inappropriate pauses and saying words that didn't make sense. He had a really frightened look and he's supposed to have it all together. Finally, the, they, they clipped to another person and he was able to get away. And so what did he do then? Well, he realized he needed help. And he found Mark Epstein, who's a psychiatrist and a Dharma teacher, who connected him with Joseph Goldstein, another Dharma teacher, and he started the Path of Practice. He has a book called 10% Happier about this experience. And it's really sweet. It's really funny. And he's also now got, you know, a years-long podcast, an app, and a whole panoply of teachings and using his all of his skills that he had in interviewing people. He interviews Dharma teachers and practitioners and amplifies their voices of Dharma teachers and this accesses millions of people. And his his way of interviewing people, he's developed the skill of connecting with people and really being curious. He's kind and you know, meets them with kind of a friendly skepticism. No flowery language, just really direct. He uses all of his skills now to share the Dharma. He completely transformed this absolute train wreck of a moment in his career. And he, he made it a huge gift to the world. He's so generous. He, he'll often play a clip of this very panic attack. You can see it on YouTube. It's had millions of views. That is so generous. So 
This is a capacity that we all share. This capacity is also exemplified in the story of the Buddha's enlightenment. And I love the story of the Buddha's enlightenment. I love every piece of it. And there's lots of pieces of it. Don't get me started on it because I really love it. I never connected to the Christmas stories, but I just love that there's this story that I do connect with that we get to tell every December. <laughs> this one part of the story is what I'm reminded by, reminded of where the Buddha is tempted by Mara, the demon Mara, when the Buddha finally sat down to see through once and for all, to get to the bottom of this question of suffering. Mara comes along to try to push him off his seat, to tempt him, tempted him with his daughters who were apparently very beautiful and were representatives of greed, anger, and ignorance. He wasn't tempted, which, you know, sounds kind of simple, but just take, for instance, something as delicious as self-righteousness, right? How tempting, how intoxicating that is when we're tempted with self-righteousness that just, how dare you, right? It's that kind of tempting to kind of be willing to see through, to sit with, to see through. Mara tempted him with his armies, a mass of armies, Mara himself riding an elephant, which would be scary enough, just an elephant, scary enough, also demons, swordsmen, bows and arrows. And when they shot the arrows, the Buddha was able to turn them into flowers, this transformational capacity that we all share. Mara tempted him with doubt, with questioning, who do you think you are? And in response, the Buddha touched the earth. The earth is my witness. Can you touch the ground right now and feel it? Can you feel your hands? Go ahead and touch the ground. Feel your hands. Can you feel this breath? Can you hear these sounds? Can the earth be your witness right now, right here? Can that happen anywhere but right now, right here? Can enlightenment be anywhere but right now, right here? Where else would it be? Where else? Whatever arises can be transformed with this witnessing. This witnessing. We align with the flow and the movement of this life. And we're mostly just letting it be transformed. We're mostly just 
not getting in the way so much. For that, we have to pay attention. How do we keep getting in the way? What do we keep misunderstanding? The fact that things are not permanent. They're not perfect and they're not personal. They're not permanent. This transience, this impermanence, this fundamental instability, it's just a fact. Everything is changing. We can be sad about it. We can lament about it, the truth of this transience. We can struggle with it. It's like a surprise every time, isn't it? Like it or not, everything is completely unstable. Everything changes. The world just keeps not doing what I want it to do or what I think it should do. It keeps not doing that. Or even if it does, it sure doesn't stay like that. Sometimes when I'm leading a guided meditation, I'll hear myself referring to, you know, connect with the solidity of the earth. And I worry sometimes that I'm tempting the Cascadia subduction zone to finally succumb to the building pressure and release all that energy into this continuous dance of form and emptiness right there, right then. As if there is an eye that has some control of it. Notice that. Everything is changing. Nothing is stable. We can argue, we can fight about it, we can wave our arms, dig in, insist on our ideas of how it should be, how it ought to be, how I wish it was, how it was supposed to happen. There's a beautiful story about Ajahn Chah while drinking out of a beautiful teacup offered the teaching that he sees the cup as already broken. The cup's fate is to be broken. And when that happens, there'll be no surprise, no argument. And this opens up the capacity to truly appreciate each moment with it. I mentioned my dad the other day, and I think I wanna talk a little bit more about him today. My dad was a veterinarian, which was an interesting way to grow up. Uh, The pet hospital was a quite literal mom-and-pop operation that ran for 45 years under his leadership. And I mentioned yesterday that, or I'm sorry, two days ago, that my dad, you know, we had our difficulties for most of my life. And those did settle down. Um, Towards the end of his life, after he retired, he was um, pretty sick. 
and he was sick for a while. And the main surprise was really that he lived as long as he did, despite the many decades of mistreatment of his body. And there was a day that uh, I was talking to Mushin, who's the teacher in Corvallis in our uh, of ZCO um, family lineage. And we were taking a walk. We were at a meeting at Heart of Wisdom. We were taking a walk around the temple, and she, I was talking about my dad and how sick he was. And she asked me, she literally turned to me and asked me, have you said everything you needed to say to him? And at that point, I hadn't. So I'm very grateful that I was able to do that. And that is a real testament to having friends on the path, real Dharma friends who can help us in these moments. It's not always possible. So in his work as a small animal veterinarian, sometimes he would have to perform euthanasias on dogs and cats and pets and talk to little kids about this and be there with them and their grief. And he would tell them that everything dies, even giant redwood trees that are 500 years old, 1,000 years old, even they die. When I went back home recently, after, you know, he had died in a, several, a few years ago, and I recently went back home. There was some family crisis. My mom was in the hospital, so I was taking her home from the hospital. We were in the car, we we're driving back, and needed to stop and like talk over something. So we're actually nearby where the pet hospital was, so we pulled into the parking lot. It had previously been sold to another veterinarian. They weren't able to make a go of it, but then a tree fell on the building years prior. So it was raised, the whole building was raised, and there was nothing there but grass. Talk about impermanence. This was the sun around which my family revolved, this place. But it's gone. Or is it? Its existence impacts everything in my life in one way or another, somehow, that still ripples discernibly right here and now. So is it gone? Where is it though? We don't know what the future holds, but we do know that this, this, this moment is all we have with each other. And when we know this, it's so poignant. As Ajahn Sumedho says, right now it's like this. Right now it's like this. Every moment completely fresh and new. What if this were the last time you would be able to sit here in this zendo with all these lovely people?
What if this were the last time you would get to practice toning? Let's tone together. that sound now? Where did it go? Now is an unrepeatable moment and it's gone. This fundamentally unstable curse or blessing, this world Are these the only two choices? Is it a curse or a blessing? This inability to pin anything down. Life is not permanent. And because of that, life is also not perfect. Whenever we try to impose our idea of perfection on the world, we suffer. I'd like you to um, now please bring to mind the most beautiful toning that you could ever possibly hear anywhere. I'm talking celestial toning, like brilliant gorgeousness, superhuman, amazing toning. What are the elements of perfect, perfect toning? What is the volume? What syllable would, would there be? How much harmony, what pitch? level of participation, what would that even sound like? Now let's go ahead and tone for real. It's not going to be like the picture. <laughs> and yet, we still compare our life to Instagram. <sighs> when we just listen with concentrated awareness, Don't underestimate the concentration part because then with that awareness, the idea of comparison falls away and we 
fully inhabit this moment as it is. There is a lot that's not perfect in the world. There is suffering. There's always been suffering. It's called samsara. And we will never fix it. We will never get it just right. How many different ideas of perfection of tones was there in this room? And this is not to minimize suffering, but to see that it's what brings us to the deepest of questions. It's suffering, it's hitting bottom that allows us to become willing to look. People in 12-step recovery sometimes start meetings by introducing themselves as a grateful, recovering, whatever, alcoholic, Al-Anon, debtor, whatever our misunderstandings about life has led us to. There's a meeting with both alcoholics and Al-Anons, people who are affected by addiction and they call themselves double winners. I mean, this just beautiful humor, the lightness in the 12-step tradition. So they share stories about how misaligned they had become. The pressure builds until something has to change. Sometimes it's to a fairly tragic point before there's a willingness to really look. To find a spiritual sustenance that could never have been found otherwise. Nothing is wasted. We can't know what the future will be, even in the most difficult moments of our life. We are generally terrible fortune tellers. Terrible. Our judging, our deciding what's bad and what's good. How often have you been wrong? It's nice to be sitting with our online session participants and in our discussion group, Chujo brought up a little bit of institutional memory, how this monastery opened when it opened here in this small town, rural Oregon. Oregon has some karma around non-Christian residential spiritual communities opening in small towns called <laughs> 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 the Rajneeshis. And there were some people in this town that were very, very freaked out at the idea. 
of this community being here. I mean, really think about it. Here's this residential spiritual community with funny outfits and names and stuff. All we can do is do our best to meet each moment with clarity and kindness. So Hogan Roshi hosted an open house and this whole contingent of angry, frightened people showed up and they said things about their fears that Great Vow would lead their children into darkness. I found an article about this and there is a quote, the aura of Satan is taking a foothold. We do not want Buddhism in here. Wow. How do you meet that? How do you respond to that? Chujo said that at this open house, he observed Hogan responding first with one full breath. And he said about getting to know the community to know and be known. This practice helps us bring our attention to our experience so that we can meet it with clarity, with openness, or at least just breathe before responding. If we just did that, that's, that's a lot. What's amazing about this, though, too, is that this conflict, it was ongoing. There were letters to the editor, and it got media attention. And and the story of this open house was reported on in the newspapers and got picked up by the AP Wire. And then one day, I was on my break at in the break room at Columbia Community Mental Health in St. Helens, where I was working at the time. And I read about the fact that there was a Zen monastery that opened up in Klatskanai, which is like Columbia County? Zen monastery? I might as well have read that a spaceship landed in Klatskanai. Oh, and then I read all these quotes and I thought, oh gosh, I made a note to myself. I'm going to have to check that place out. Maybe, you know, they might, maybe they could use some support. And I remember going there, here, <laughs> with Boncho in early 2004, and then I did a personal retreat. And when I showed up, the Gensho was there that very day. He was there doing some work on the grounds, just hanging out. But it wasn't just me that was... Uh, drawn to the monastery because of this. Lots of people <laughs> were. Lots of people from Klatskanai, from the surrounding area, wanted to demonstrate that there's a lot of open-heartedness that's here and understanding and wanted to support the monastery. Was it bad, this protest, this conflict? Was it good? Did that open house go the way it was supposed to go? Does anything? So how do we apply this right here and now? 
Let's be clear about what we're experiencing. Comfort and discomfort. How meaningful is that, really? How much weight do we put on it? When things go my way, how meaningful is that, really? So how can you judge your practice? You can't. You're a terrible judge of your practice. You should really stop it. <laughs> Life is not perfect. It's also not personal. Is the Cascadia subduction zone concerned about our personal preferences? Time passes in this impermanent life and death will come for us all in some way. That is totally not personal. When we align with this truth, it can actually be a comfort. And my dad was also an example of this practice. As a veterinarian, some of the treatments he would have to administer might be painful for dogs. If they were injured, if they were scared, sometimes they would react. Sometimes they would bite. His arms were just a collection of these events. And sometimes he would even just suture up his own arms. And you know what? He never took it personally. He never did. I will say too, he was a big man and um, sometimes he would walk through the pet hospital and I swear all the animals would be quiet. Whatever he did. <laughs> and my own path as a healer, as a therapist, sometimes finds me in similar territory when people are in pain. They lash out sometimes. They bite in their way. And I do my best not to take it personally and see them as innocent as any other being in pain. And we're all doing our best. Not personal. When I can do this, things really do go a lot more smoothly. And this practice right here, right now, is instrumental to this clarity of view because it's so easy to forget. One of my friends was recently, I mean, kind of struggles with this and being in despair about the world, which is not unusual. It's quite understandable. He has two little kids. He's scared about their future, scared and sad about the planet. And so we were just texting about this as, as you do. <laughs> yeah, afraid of the world come to an end. And I texted him that sometimes I'm comforted by the fact that in a few billion years, maybe the earth will be swallowed by the sun. Like, 
And he was deeply comforted by that too. <laughs> it's so impersonal. What a, what a relief. The enormity of the universe just carries on. No matter what I mean, my opinion is about that. This enormous, spacious perspective, this impersonal perspective. What do our concerns boil down to? This is not to say that holding our focus, that we should hold our focus only on this perspective. It's cold out there in space. And if that's our only view, that's like walking around looking through a telescope all the time. But what a relief, though to see ourselves right-sized. And just how much do we really get to decide about? I want to share a little reading from Shundo Aoyama. Here she is. She was born in 1933. She's a Japanese Zen teacher. Her mother considered her a gift from the Buddha when she was born and arranged for her to live a monastic life. So she entered into a monastery at age five. She had a full Buddhist education and then became a teacher offering retreats, coming from this life steeped in the teachings. So I just want to share a little bit from her. About how much do we really get to decide about? <clears throat> the wind goes its own way and is without form. We know it is there when we hear it in the grass or the trees, see the clouds scudding overhead or feel it blow against us. We cannot see or hear autumn or hold it in our hands, but when the leaves turn red and the ears of rice turn golden, they signal the arrival of autumn. When we hear the crickets chirping at night or an autumn shower striking the eaves, or pick ripe apples and persimmons, we embrace autumn. Autumn becomes something to savor. The life and voice of the Buddha is everywhere in heaven and earth and is manifested in all things. Buddha is the name of something nameless. The life of the Buddha originally had neither name nor form, and is in everything, from a tree, 
or a blade of grass to a tile or a stone. It becomes the wind in the pines or in a sail. It is born as man or woman. It is in good and evil, beauty and ugliness. Whatever form something takes, it manifests the Buddha. Whenever I am so arrogant as to think that I have the power to give myself life, I think of this poem by a five-year-old child. The moment I say, tongue, speak, my tongue has moved. When I told my tongue to speak, what moved it? The moment I say, tongue, speak, my tongue has moved. When I told my tongue to speak, what moved it? The power that moves my tongue before I do is a power that works without rest when I sleep and makes a flower bloom or a horse neigh. Whether we know it or not, the Buddha holds us in the palm of his hand. and He is the power that gives us life to symbolize and revere that power people have given artistic form to what originally was without name or form by carving images of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in human form. In the way a child sometimes needs to call its mother, we call on Amida Buddha or Kanon Bodhisattva. Then everything is revealed as Amida or as transformations of Kanon. Isn't this a relief? There's so little we control. Flowers fall with our attachment. Weeds spring up with our aversion. We practice seeing the truth in flowers, in weeds. Flowers fall. Weeds spring up. Forests burn, fuel refineries get built nearby, wars erupt. How can we face this without a strong back, strong equanimity to help us stand firmly in the truth of all of this? Everything is just as it is. And it's for us to see this for ourselves. Not permanent, not perfect, not personal. So what though? So what? I can say all these things, but it's more important for you to turn toward your own experience. to turn towards pain, brokenheartedness, disappointment, anger, fear, anxiety, insecurity, boredom, longing, whatever's here. It may turn out to be the best thing you have to offer the world. Mm. 
with practice, you may feel better. Sometimes there is deep, profound peace. But our practice is more important than feeling better. What could be more important than feeling better? Please take up that question. What is this moment asking of you? I love this poem by Wendell Berry. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we've come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. The impeded stream is the one that sings. What is this moment asking of you? Being with what is, I respond to what is. As Hogan was saying yesterday, our response will be more effective when we see our life clearly. A response to angry townspeople, more effective after one full breath, after a lifetime of practice. How will you participate in the world as it is? What will you do? Please honor all of the causes and conditions that brought you here to practice in this way. Please honor your life by offering it your deepest attention. This time we have together is really just about impossible. What if this is the last time we have to sit together, to chant together, to eat together, to do walking meditation together? Right now, it's like this. What is this moment asking of you? Thank you.